I say yes. <laughs> I say yes. I don't. There's no thought in anything except yes. I don't say no. And and even the, that's how I got my entire career. You know, it's just a dare. I was at in the mid '70s. I was at a comedy club as an audience member, and they at the end of the show, the owner in Toronto, Yuck Yuck, said, "Does anybody want to try this at midnight with the three-minute sets on Mondays?" And somebody at the table said, "You should get up." And I went, "Okay, yes." And I just showed up. Think about it for a second. Are there more areas in your life that you could say yes to? Howie Mandel built his career on saying yes. And that includes saying yes to coming to Austin. He'll be at Moon Tower just for laughs at the Paramount Theater on April 19th. On this episode of Juilliards, there's a lot you and I can learn from Howie. From how freeing it can be to just admit to everyone that you're a mess, to how to find joy in moments that are awkward and uncomfortable. Have you spent a lot of time in Austin? I haven't spent a lot of time, but I've been there many times, but I haven't spent as much time. I, I love that place. And I also believe that the, there's been a shift in my world of comedy to Austin. You know, in the 70s, um, New York was the epicenter of everything comedy. And then when the, the Tonight Show in the 70s moved to L.A., L.A. became like the comedy store and the improv became the epicenter comedy and now that uh, you know digital is more uh is bigger people become bigger just because of things on youtube and podcasts i think that there is a shift uh, where that is kind of the new epicenter of comedy hence moon tower jfl oh wow that's interesting i never thought of it like that well it's a very open creative uh, audience who is open to uh, you know a very diverse vast multitude of you know subject matters, types of comedy, same as the music, you know, music, yeah. you know, film. And that's, it has become a real, it's, it's an, an arts community, which makes the entire community kind of creative and open-minded. And there is no better uh, landing spot for comedy than anybody who's open-minded, especially nowadays. Yes, for sure. So Howie, do you think of yourself first and foremost as a stand-up comedian? You know, you have just done so much. In fact, I told my mom that I was going to talk to you this week and she said, oh, that is so nice. Do you remember how adorable he was on St. Elsewhere? And I said, oh my God, I do. I love that show. Yeah. You, yes. It, to answer your question succinctly, yes. I, first and foremost and always they stand up and then everything else from acting to animation to hosting games to being a judge on AGT is secondary. My, my happy place and my comfort zone has always been stand-up. The, the thing now is, you know, I, I think I'm more known for my television than I am for my stand-up. I haven't been as active. You know, up until about three years ago, I was still doing about 200 live dates a year. When COVID happened, uh, it shut me down uh, much more than the average person because of my mental health issues. So this is probably, Austin is probably under 20th, time that I've been on stage in the last three years. Wow. But that being said, you know, I stopped, you know, in the 80s, 90s, I was doing, um, you know, cable specials and uh, a lot of stand-up on television. I stopped doing that. And, uh, but I continue to, uh, you know, to play and do stand-up. And because of what people don't know, and I, and I every interview I do, I, I'm telling people, like, because you know me or people think of me, maybe say elsewhere or... AGT or deal or no deal. Don't bring the kids to the show. <laughs> I'm not, 
I'm not as family friendly as those shows I'm on. That is good to know. How do you think you've been able to manifest so many different things? I say yes. <laughs> I say yes. I don't. There's no thought in anything except yes. I don't say no. And and even the, that's how I got my entire career. You know, it's just a dare. I was at in the mid 70s. I was at a comedy club as an audience member. And they at the end of the show, the owner in Toronto, yuck, yuck does anybody want to try this at midnight with the three-minute sets on Mondays? And somebody at the table said, you should get up. And I went, okay, yes. And I just showed up. And not with any aspiration to be a comedian, to be in show business, to do anything, no preparation. And uh, I ended up, I had nothing. Was it a disaster? You showed up cold? No, it wasn't. I didn't understand what it was. I mean, if you go look at the old YouTube uh, me, it was just my terror it was entertaining to other people so much so I had nothing to do I had my hands in my pocket and I have rubber gloves always with me because I'm a germaphobe and I knew that I have to use a public restroom and out of desperation I just pulled it over my head and started breathing the fingers were going and I blew a rubber glove up on my head which became a staple of what people knew me for and bought me my first house so uh, you know and then uh, when you know I kind of blew up as a stand-up doing uh, HBO and then thought I would get a sitcom. I ended up going to uh, MTM on a general meeting and got cast in St. Elsewhere, which was a drama. Yeah. And uh, I said, okay. And I, I just replaced somebody. They had been shooting for seven days. They didn't, uh, they wanted to recast a couple of parts and I got recast. And that was six years. And then, had they seen your stand? No, no. They said, it, they said, had they seen it, they probably wouldn't have hired me. They, in fact, during the run of that, they asked me to quit because. They thought it, my stand-up uh, persona was uh, kind of uh, hurting the credibility of the character of the of the, you know a very serious dramatic hospital show, but I didn't because I was making a lot more money doing stand-up than I ever did on St. Elsewhere. And then at the same time, while I was doing that, I got offered. Uh, you know, my friends knew that I did some funny voices, which were part of the nightclub act and my concert act and no material and. We partnered and ended up making a Saturday morning cartoon. That's I never dreamed that I'd be part of a Saturday morning cartoon and a mm. voiceover career, which is, you know, Gizmo and Gremlins and the Puppet Babies. And then uh, I certainly didn't want to be or set out to be a game show host or even a judge on a... So everything just happens and I kind of go with it. I don't think... I, I think I live by the credo of Nike of just do it. Yeah. You know? Is it true? I read that when you were offered deal or no deal, you said no. And like a couple times, no. That was the first time I've ever said no. Like you said, what is it? What do I? How do you manifest? Uh, think that uh, this career has gone. I, I said, I did say no. And um, my wife, who is a, a lot brighter than I am, well, I think she just wanted me out of the house. Said, <laughs> Go, take it, take the deal. And I did. And there's been no, that was the first time, you know, when we talk about, like you were just talking you know, I was a stand-up, and then people know me from St. Elsewhere, and then I did Saturday Morning. I had a very fractured audience. The people that knew me as a stand-up comic didn't know that I was the guy on St. Elsewhere. In fact, uh, I always got letters saying I have a bet with my husband that Fiskus is not the same guy that blew the glove up on his head, you know? And then people who watched Saturday Morning with their kids didn't know I was the voice and I was the guy and the same guy from St. Elsewhere or stand-up on that Saturday Morning audience. 
Deal or No Deal was the first time with that kind of instant huge success that that show had brought all those audiences together going, oh my God, that's the guy from St. Elsewhere. That's the stand-up. That's the Saturday morning Bobby guy. That's, and now he's a game show host. So yes, I didn't want to do it. A, a game show host was in, if you think about 2005, I was about ready to uh, like uh, retire from show business. I had uh, been around for a long time. I had done movies, which I, I didn't really enjoy that process of three months someplace away from home, sitting in a trailer doing five lines a day, mm -hmm. you know, so, and then, and then, uh, stand up was waning at the time. I was barely getting, uh, clubs half filled, you know, at, in, by 2005. And I just, uh, I just said, you know, I'll pack it in. I have other interests and other things. And right then they called and said, we have a game show for you. And if you put yourself in the perspective of 2005, comics did not do game shows you know the game show was not just like movie stars didn't want to do commercials comics didn't want to be host a game show and i didn't want to do it and i thought it would be the nail in the coffin of my career but my wife because i was stopping and slowing down anyway she said go do something go do this and i listened to her and did it and nothing has been more rewarding in my career as far as it, it opened the doors back up to stand up you know now, now i was selling a, a lot of tickets People were coming to see me and I was getting other offers and I started a production company. And so I'm glad I did it. And then, you know, I guess it was a good idea to have a comic host because then after that, you know, mm -hmm. you see uh, Steve Harvey and uh, Jeff Boxworthy and all these other, every other game show is hosted by a comic. It's like, it sort of set a template, you know, you, you blaze the yeah. trail and everybody followed. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of your wife, Howie. I read that you've been married for over 40 years, which is just... 43 years. Oh, God. Yeah. That's just amazing. What I you... think it is. I hope she does. I'm sure that she does. What would you say? I mean, from your experience, what do you think is key to a long-lasting marriage? Oh, she would tell you. I'm going to Austin, and she's not. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's the key. That's the key for her. You know, apparently, I'm a lot of fun to come to a show and spend a... a couple of hours with but to live with is not as much fun so if i'm away for any amount of time people have a tendency to really enjoy me and love me <laughs> well absence makes the heart grow fonder right she's apparently yeah. well, yes that's what she keeps saying I'm, <laughs> I'm taking it as a positive i mean i think that's real i think there's something to that my husband just came back from snowboarding and it was just wonderful to have the house all to myself and i missed him and i was right. excited for him to come back so see there you go she's right yeah. I mean, but, you know, like nowadays, I feel like it's people will say, oh, in Hollywood, that's just unheard of. But really, in life in general, it's tough for people to stay together. In life in general, people don't people don't uh, usually last this long. They really don't. And you, and because you married young, like she was with you through that whole journey of what it was like um, kind of establishing yourself. Now, you, I feel like you're on your second wind and, and who knows what's going to come next. By the way, I just discovered your podcast recently, which I just love. And I'm, I can't wait to go and, and like binge the whole thing on my walks. Thanks. I just came out of it. That's why I just walked out of the studio, which is the, this one's going up uh, uh, Tuesday. But it's the first time uh, Tom Sandoval taking telling us his side of the story. Oh. That's what he just did. I just came from uh, two hours of talking to him or letting him talk. So you just got the scoop, man. I did. Me and my daughter. My daughter's a huge uh, 
Vanderpump Rules fan. So. Uh, well, how fun that you guys are doing this together. That's the highlight of my week when I get to sit with my kids. She, I co-host with, with my daughter and, and my son is the producer. What is that like to create these little people who now you work with? What does that feel like? Amazing and surreal. And they're old enough and they create their own people. So they have, you know, have grandchildren. So that's, it's kind of weird and it's amazing. Grandchildren are amazing. Had I known how amazing it was, I would have done that first. <laughs> I've heard grandkids are the most fun because you get all the fun and none of the responsibility, right? Because you're not the parent. You can Absolutely. be. Absolutely. Do you, so do you, in fact, use your family a lot in your stand-up today or do they not like that? Um, yeah, you know, in the sense that, yeah, yes, is the, is the short answer. I'm kind of in, you know, I look to, when you come to the show, I think of it as a giant party and I'm just trying to be the center of attention. And obviously I have a plethora of material and things that happen. I love reality. I love the, what's happening in my life or in that moment at the time. You know, I like to be taken off my beaten path. And as far as if something happens in the room or something happens that day in Austin or if something happens technically, I like to be taken off that so that it makes each show special and fun for me. It's like a, ro a roller coaster. So I'm really looking forward. That's what I look forward to. So it's not, you know, but yes, I can only talk about me and everybody and things that happen to me yeah. and around me. So, yes. How do you capture your ideas for stand-up? I always feel like I have good ideas in my daily life. I'm always looking for things to talk about on my show. But I feel like a lot of ideas I don't capture very well. Do you carry a notebook? What is your what is your method? For well, now I used to, but now now I, I just text it to myself and email it to me, myself. Ah. And, then, and then I spend half the day trying to discern what the email means. <laughs> and why did I think that was even English, let alone a, a good idea? Okay, so a yeah. lot of culling through, like, uh, that wasn't actually good, or I don't even know what yeah. I was trying to say with that. Right. That's so you funny. Know, like, croissants, I read, like, I'll read at night, croissants are mean. I don't get it. Like, what does that even mean, croissants are mean? I don't know what I was thinking, I don't know why I'm saying it, and I don't even think that's true. So then you got to move on. Yes, I do. Uh, how much of your show do you, like, improvise when you're on stage? Every night, that's a different percentage, but uh, I hope. You know, I, I like as much as I possibly can, but I can, I can do 100%, you know, written and scripted. And I look to that room and that audience in that moment to take me off my script. I, I like that. Yeah. You know, I like, you know, if somebody approaches the stage, if something happens, if somebody, uh, you know, it, whatever happens, I'd like to just make it real and in the moment. And for there, that, that's, that gets your, uh, adrenaline rushing. It's like a roller coaster. I love that. That's my favorite part of the night. I love it when you do that too, because I feel like you are one of the few who really interacts with the audience and you're not afraid to see where it's going to lead you. But you also give the audience a feeling of calm with the excitement because it's like we're in good hands. Like whatever's going to happen, we don't have to worry. Well, I'm, I'm comfortable with discomfort. And, you know, as when I'm asked to describe my career, or my stand up, it's everything I was ever punished for, expelled for or made somebody angry for is what I seem to get paid for today. So I'm comfortable in in that discomfort, you know, and it's kind of like. A, How are you comfortable in that? Like in those awkward places? How does that happen? Like, was that a practice? Because that's where I spend. No, well, it's a practice. It's, a, it's not a practice as much as it's just my existence. 
my existence is such that, you know, I, I am who I am and I do what I do. And that's how, uh, you know, the world has always, uh, you know, accepted me. And as far as, you know, I was asked to leave school. I don't have a GED. I was always, um, they're called pranks now, but I was always uh, kind of fascinated by, you know, if I did something ridiculous, I was fascinated by how everybody reacted around me more than, more than hearing how many laughs I would get, you know, more than, you know, like, which they ended up using in a movie later on. But, you know, when I was a kid and I didn't want to go swimming at the school, throwing a chocolate bar in the pool, you know, and everybody would line up to think somebody crapped in the pool. And then when they were all around the pool. You did that? You put a baby Ruth in the pool? Yeah, but then but then when everybody showed up to look to see what somebody had done in the pool, I dived in and came up with it in my mouth. <laughs> and and not that, that that didn't win me. I was 15 years old. That didn't win me any friends and nor dates <laughs> you know it was just like I, I was fascinated by how disgusted everybody was you know and never and you were like ahead of your time maybe you know but uh, you know and and even to this day my wife and anybody who my family will always go well who's the joke on Howie they you just walk out of there and they think you're an idiot and that kind of makes me that thrills me more than anything you know I love when I put something on TikTok that is just ridiculous, but people take it for truth. And uh, those, that's much better, the people who don't get it, than the people who do get it, to me. Yeah. Because I just like that awkward, uncomfortable, and I think that I live in that place, and I think a lot of humans do. You know, I'm, listen, I'm medicated, and I'm, I've been very open about my mental health and, and neurosis and depression and whatever, but I don't think anybody really feels comfortable. I think we spend our time dressing up, designing how we're going to, uh, you know, show ourselves to the world, whether it's at the office or at a party or just in public, because we're all so insecure about how we believe people are going to take us. So I've embraced that insecurity and kind of, you know, added, you know, I've sped that up and made it a career. Yeah. You're 100% right about that. And I do love it whenever I, I see you talking and you say, I'm a mess, because I think we are all a mess. I really am, you know, and I don't say it to be funny. I am, you know, but, you know, and, and, and there's something incredibly freeing about saying that. And even in, an, in, in, in a live show, you know, if something happens and I legitimately get in trouble in as far as not knowing where what direction to take it in. There's something kind of incredibly ticklish and funny and um, uh, relatable to everybody in the audience if I'm getting in trouble and kind of owning it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, and no better way to be in the moment with each other, which is something that is really special these days. And that's what I strive for is to be in the moment because of my mental health issues. You know, if I'm not in the moment, then I'm thinking about, and, and fearful of things that might happen and reiterating on things that did happen and second guessing what happened. So the most comfortable place is being in the moment in a very, and I just quote quotation marks around a dangerous place because that just keeps you alive and in the moment and you can't think about anything else. And it's the best distraction in the world. Yes. Yeah. God, that makes so much sense. 
your parents must be so proud of you. But like when you were a kid, how worried were they for you? You know, my family, uh, uh, well, right now my mother is in late stage Alzheimer's, and, which is debilitating and crazy and, and hor- horrible. And my father passed uh, years back. But they were always the most supportive. They, you know, their sense of humor preceded everything. So even when they were trying to reprimand me, you know, this is why I, I think and, and I look for people that have a sense of humor. And a sense of humor to me is not somebody who um, tells a joke or knows or hears the rhythm of a joke and then goes, you know, and laughs at the right time. A sense of humor is the ability to find the sense, the humor, where it's not supposed to be funny. And the perfect example of that is, you know, one of the things that I got asked to leave high school for because I thought it was funny is I, I uh, we had the yellow pages and I called a construction company to give bids on a uh, an addition to the library in our school and, and made an appointment for him to come out and measure the area at three o'clock because I knew that I was going to be in math and I was looking down on the field and I, I didn't even tell anybody. I didn't have any friends really. I was just this pariah. I was this weird kid who acted weird, uh, which didn't make me popular. But I, I thought it was really fun to look out to the field during math and there was this guy with a tape measure and a clipboard. And for me, it was funny because I had ordered an addition onto the library. I, I didn't know how this was going to play out. But I watched the principal or vice principal go out, talk to the guy, explain then I saw him walk in, I saw the guy walk away, and then lo and behold, over the PA system, when little Howard Mandel, please come down to the office. <laughs> and I went down to the office. And really seriously, he goes, you know, I was just out in the field, and there was a guy, did you hire somebody to put an addition onto the library? And I said, no, I did not. I'm getting three bids. I'm a little more responsible than that. <laughs> and he goes, please, just sit down. And I sat down, and he goes, I'm going to call your parents. And I waited. I just love being the in the midst of this whirlwind of confusion and weirdness. And my parents show up at the school and he's explaining to my parents, you know, who I know they're not thrilled that they get called to the school again, you know, mm-hmm. for their son's behavior. But they, you know, he's sitting there and saying, you know, your son hired a company to put an addition onto the library. And I'm looking at my parents, and I could see my mom's lip quivering, like trying not to laugh. <laughs> And my dad's just like pinching his own leg. Like, I don't know what they were supposed to say. And they weren't thrilled. I was thrown out of school, but it was always interesting. I knew they were trying to reprimand me through laughter, you know, and Mm -hmm. I knew they knew it was funny. So I always felt the support. I always felt like they knew that I was, that they enjoyed me. God, that's amazing. You know? And that's so important. And that's a, that's like a very grown up joke. I don't know that a lot of high school kids could have really thought that through. I was never described. It was never described as grown up. You know, I, I was I couldn't get a friend because I just thought I was there was something wrong with. Me. And they're probably they thought you were out there and they didn't get it. Nobody did. And I wasn't looking for them to get it. I did. I wasn't sophisticated enough to say, um, you know, I'm going to do this joke and tell a whole bunch of people so everybody's in on it. It might make me popular because I'm doing this practical joke that the whole school is in. It was always just for me. And that's what made it weird. Your parents got it, though. They did. And they go, why are you like it? Like, this so that they thought I was special and, and amazing. And, 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 I, and that was enough for me, you know, and I've always felt supported in that way. But, you know, I was always dealing with a lot of stuff in my own mind. I, I feel like, but who, you know, I feel like the luckiest guy in the world where all these kind of issues and this kind of thought process and this path 
has led me to something which was perceived as a problem as a child and a career as an adult. Well, yeah, and a remarkable career. Are you exhausted all the time? You seem to me like you have so much energy, but you have all this internal stuff going on and you're you're yeah. pushing yourself out there. I wonder how tired you are at the end of the day. Uh, not at the end of the day. I wake up tired, but that's, I mean, I'm, I, I'm used to that. You know, this is, uh, this is like a, I feel like I'm always in this weird and wonderful, uh, constantly changing dream. Mm, wow, what a good description. Thank you. <laughs> so that gives you energy to go to go forward and see what's coming up next. It's kind of like that energy. If you were really tired and you went, I love thrill rides, I love roller coasters. And even if you didn't get a lot of sleep last night, if you only slept two hours, but you went to an amusement park and you went on the biggest, scariest roller coaster of your life, there's no way that you would climb up that 10 stories and be dropped down that death-defying drop and go, you know, I'm just too tired to scream and yell and enjoy this. You know, life just surges in adrenaline through you. And until there's moments of quiet, do I, do I notice the, how tired I am? But usually I'm just, I'm just on this roller coaster having this ride and surging with adrenaline because I don't know what's going to happen. You know, as I talk to you right now, I'm on my way to the studio to go do AGT. You know, you sit there and there's 3,000 people screaming in the audience. Somebody comes on and they set themselves on fire. You know, I I don't know what I'm going to see. In fact, I got to go into the studio right now. Well, thanks, Howie, for spending some time with me. We're looking forward to you coming to the Paramount Theater on April 19th. All right, see you then. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Juilliard's. And if you enjoyed our conversation today, please follow or subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. If you want to hear more from Juliet, listen to Magic 95.5 weekday afternoons. She's on the air from noon to seven, keeping you company while you're at work and on that all too lengthy drive home.